You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, January 27th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And today, Theresa May, Prime Minister of Great Britain, the UK. I said Great Britain first, not the UK, because I don't want to overly rhyme the thing. Met with Donald Trump, and they held a press conference afterwards. And there, Tom, a British journalist, Named Tom, identified as Tom, asked the following question. How can the British Prime Minister believe you? Because you have been known in the past to change your position on things. And also, may I ask a question to both of you? People are fascinated to know how you're going to get on with each other. You're so different. The, the hardworking daughter of a vicar, the brash TV extrovert. Have you found anything in common personally yet? Actually, I'm not as brash as you might think. <laughs> Okay, then, let me give it another try. You, Miss May, who once held the position at the Association for Payment Clearing Services, and you, Mr. Trump, who once shaved Vince McMahon's head in a punitive measure at a world wrestling extravaganza. You also owned a USFL team. You, Miss Prime Minister who has been described as sensible, if underwhelming, having once failed to garner more than 10% of the vote in the by-election in the parliamentary constituency of Barking. And you, Mr. Trump, who were once described as the American Berlusconi, as a man experiencing, and I quote, an existence unmolested, by the rumbling of a soul. In short, she is ice, you are fire, she is England, you are the US, she is of England's green and pleasant land, and you are a terrific 68-story tower with all the best marble. What I'm saying is say something crazy for me, please, Mr. Trump. All my British friends will have a larf down at the pub, should you shout at me a bit. But the president did not shout. He is, I think, a bit intimidated by the English accent. It is, after all, so classy. On the show today, more international relations. We go to Russia, which is unusual among failing nations because it is cold. You ever notice this? The cold nations, by and large, doing quite well. But first, Elliot Cohen, proponent of the war in Iraq, thinker and advisor to George W. Bush, analyzes and deeply frets about the current administration. You're a 
podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Elliot Cohen is a longtime thinker on foreign affairs and military matters. He became an architect of the same. He was a member of the uh, George W. Bush Administration Defense Policy Advisory Committee and actually directly worked in the State Department as an advisor for the last couple of years as the George W. Bush Administration. Now, this year, upon Trump's mm, prominence elevation, he took a look at what was going on and said, no, this is a break from any worldview that I or any sane person should adhere to. And then upon Trump's election, he advised young people to take jobs in a Trump administration, if nothing else, as a bulwark against the incoming president's worst instincts. But then after one conversation with the Trump team, he retracted this idea. His new book is The Big Stick, The Limits of Soft Power and the Necessity of Military Force. And he is a professor at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you for joining me, Elliot Cohen. Pleasure to be with you. First of all, you can help me answer this question. This is breaking news on the day we're talking. Uh, senior or all the senior leadership, it has been reported, of the State Department has resigned en masse since Rex Tillerson took the job. Uh, can you put this in any kind of context? Well, you know, it's just one more uh, crazy thing, which tell, tells you that you know, there are always going to be two possibilities with the Trump administration, which is that it could be pretty weird, but you know, sort of Republican normal in a certain way, uh, or could be really weird and really profoundly not okay and not normal at all. And unfortunately, this is one of the indications that it's the latter. So, you know, looking at the news reports, it looks like it's the management uh, piece of the State Department, which is pretty important because we have, after all, embassies and consulates all over the world. The top guy there, Pat Kennedy, had been around forever. He was probably going to retire sooner or later. That's not particularly important. I, I think it was his immediate subordinates leaving as well, which is a, uh, somewhat alarming. I think you will find other people quitting as well. I, I don't think that that will be a reflection on Tillerson, who uh, I've never met, but by all accounts, is kind of a reasonable guy. I think it is a reflection on uh, the State Department's you know, reaction to the foreign policy of the Trump administration. Or the perceived foreign policy or what we've seen after just a few days. But is it a good thing or a bad thing for America if all these uh, senior people leave, even if they're in the tough position of working with the Trump administration? It, it's a bad thing for a number of reasons. First, you know, a lot of these people have a lot of experience, and particularly the, the diplomats. Uh, these are kind of very difficult and delicate uh, jobs in many ways. They don't have the vast resources of the Defense Department. You lose a whole bunch of experienced people at the top, the, the institution really will suffer. But, but it's also a very alarming vote of no confidence by an institution which on the whole is a pretty disciplined institution. And on the whole, will follow the lead of whoever is in charge. I, mean, I, I was the counselor of the State Department, as you pointed out at the beginning here, for two years. So I was a fairly senior official. I think it's fair to say most diplomats did not agree with a lot of uh, Bush administration foreign policy. But I have to tell you, my time there, uh, first, I was treated quite well by my professional career colleagues. And I thought, on the whole, they worked reasonably effectively to you know, do follow the, the kind of guidance uh, and direction that uh, President Bush and Secretary Rice gave them. Now, 
Coming into this job, Trump has said time and again, President Obama is weak. His weakness gave rise to chaos in the world. I'm sure you would subscribe to at least a large part of that diagnosis. Is the problem that Donald Trump just has no definition of strength? Uh, no, he does have a certain definition of strength, and it's usually an ugly definition yeah. of strength. Yeah. Uh, and it's bullying and uh, things of that nature. I mean, you know, for example, this preposterous idea we're going to build a wall and we're going to make Mexico a you know a smaller poorer country pay for it i mean that's, it's contemptible uh, behavior and it's, it's unworthy of a great country there are ideas there and i think we in his inaugural address he used the phrase america first and i am pretty sure that he and i'm certain that his advisors know what the provenance of that is that comes straight out of, out of charles Lindbergh in 1940 those were the isolationists those were the nazi sympathizers and the fact that he's willing to play around with that is scary stuff. Yeah, he plays footsie with odious people. He says things that uh, seem scary, seem ill-informed, and are just flat-out lies. But on the international stage, is your big fear that he'll start from day one getting a key strategy wrong? Or is your big fear that in some flare-up that we don't even know about, he'll get pulled into it and, you know, send many Americans to die or in other, way, in other ways bungle the situation and not handle our interests? Well, there's, there's a whole bunch of issues I think that you have to worry about. So the, the first is, although he has some predispositions and instincts, I don't think there's a kind of a large, you know, far-reaching concept of what he wants to do in the world. Yeah, I think there is no, I think there is no Trump doctrine. I think there might there's, be. A, there's no Trump. There might be a Trump spasm here and there. Right, and there, are, there are Trump instincts. Yeah. But the second part of it, though, is uh, what you talked about, which is crisis management. The crises actually usually end up defining presidencies much more than presidents uh, would like. And in the same way, 9/11 very much defined the Bush uh, administration, and it's. Not just that he personally will react badly, but I have no confidence whatsoever in the team that he's put together. I've got I, – I should stipulate I think very, very highly of Secretary Mattis, and I think Tillerson would be okay. But when I look at the NSC staff, I get very worried. And the third thing – and this goes back to your earlier question about uh, Obama. You know, Sooner or later, somebody will stand up to him. Uh, he is a bully, and he will back down. I mean I, I worry about – his hyper-aggressiveness, and I quite agree with you, he may end up getting a lot of people killed, Americans and non-Americans unnecessarily. But I also worry that at some point somebody will look him squarely in the eye and he'll back down. And we have evidence of that. You know, One of the, the episodes that people uh, for some reason don't mention anymore is his shelling out $25 million uh, to buy himself out of the lawsuit over Trump University, one of his, one of his business games. Well, you know, Oddly enough, and it, you know, it is ironic, uh, you could end up with the kind of thing that many of us, and myself very much included, criticized Obama for. That is the red line that wasn't a red line, which damaged our credibility very considerably. So you know, as strange as it sounds, I, I worry about his aggressiveness and his bullying and his ignorance. There, there is also a way in which I, I will worry about his weakness. North Korea, Russia, China. Middle East is one more worrisome to you than the others. I put China first because China is really the only competing power out there, which in some ways would like to rewrite the rules of the international system, particularly in Asia, and which has the resources and the ability to, to challenge us. After that, I would put the jihadi threat, which I tend to frame as a 
you know, a war that will probably go on for generations, but that in a certain way means that we should not put it actually on the front burner. Uh, I think that's another mistake Trump will make. A third tier of threats are what I call dangerous states that would include Russia, Iran, North Korea, and then finally the, the challenge of ungoverned space, whether it's outer space or, or cyberspace. And, the, you know, the big challenge that we have, and it'd be an enormous challenge if it were, I don't know, Jeb Bush uh, or, for that matter, Hillary Clinton as president, you know, people who were reasonably sensible and thoughtful, is those are all very large challenges. They all do involve one way or another military power as well as soft power. Uh, the forms of military power that you need for each of those are not the same, uh, and they're all quite difficult. So th this would all be a really big problem even a really formidable set of challenges, e even if we had a, a competent, sane Republican or Democrat in the White House. And I don't really think that's what we've got. What about his vow to wipe the Islamic State from the face of the earth? Was it wise to make that claim in the inaugural? No, it was stupid. Um, in that chapter I have on dealing with the jihadi uh, challenge, I quote approvingly a former chief of the Australian army, Peter Leahy, who said, we're in a hundred years war here. And I, you know that's that's a daunting thought, but in in a certain way that that means that you realize okay, we're going to have to think about this strategically over a very very long time horizon. We're not going to solve it on our watch, and in fact, efforts to try to win by some sort of knockout blow can end up making things worse. What we've seen with these various radical movements, you know, most of which one way or another are outgrowths of Al Qaeda, is they change, they evolve, they spread. Uh, they react to us, and I'm sure that at some point Islamic State uh, forces will be driven out of Iraq, but either they or some other kindred movement will very much be in other parts of the world, and they'll operate in, in different ways. So the idea that you can really achieve a kind of smashing victory with, simply with battlefield success is not right. I mean, we're doing more or less the right thing and helping the Iraqis. We probably should have done more earlier on, but but to promise uh, a sort of a total decisive victory, I think is to really fundamentally misunderstand the nature of the adversary here. For the last couple of years, should we have handled domestic terrorism if it was inspired by ISIS differently? Should we, I mean, it freaked us out. And of course, 50 people die in the Pulse nightclub or San Bernardino. That's a gigantic tragedy yet set against, you know, some other examples of domestic violence. It's not bigger than that. But man, did it drive our agenda. And there was Donald Trump, chief among people, saying that Obama was weak and this was a consequence right. of that. Should we have handled that differently? Should we have a different tact on that going forward? Well, my, my my feeling all along has been, and I, I was critical actually of the Bush administration, also the Obama administration, for the way that they talked about this issue to the American uh, public, which was, it's what I call the Lord Voldemort theory of uh, the enemy, which is, uh, you know, this, the, the archvillain of uh, the Harry Potter books, or, you know, you can, if Sauron, if you're a uh, Lord of the Rings fan, that is, you, you talk about the enemy as if they're evil and they're simply they, they do evil because they like doing evil. This has nothing whatsoever to do with uh, a great religious faith. Now, the more reasonable, the more accurate, the more truthful version is actually this does have to do with a stream within Islam. It is not the majority stream, but it is there, and we have to understand that. I think the American people knew that the idea that this had absolutely nothing to do with Islam was crazy. 
The problem is they're now very susceptible to the case that Michael Flynn has made and other people in the administration have made, and which I think Trump himself may subscribe to as well, which is it's entirely about Islam, which is its own form of craziness. Because again, first of all, it's not true. I mean, most Muslims don't support these movements and are in fact appalled by them. Most of their victims are Muslim. Um, and you know, you really do run the risk of inciting much more violence by making this a war against Islam. Do you think that the chance of a nuclear war has ticked up appreciably now that Trump is president? Uh, somewhat. I've, I've felt for a long time, and again, it's part of why I wrote uh, this book, uh, The Big Stick, that we're heading to a more chaotic and disorderly world for a whole bunch of reasons, some of which have to do with us, most of which have to do with other developments in the world. Uh, I think the United States having such a kind of reckless, impulsive, ill-informed kind of president makes everything all the more unpredictable. So yes, I am more concerned. Elliot Cohen is the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategic Studies at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, and his new book is The Big Stick, The Limits of Soft Power and the Necessity of Military Force. Thank you so much. My pleasure. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com and now the spiel. So tomorrow, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin are scheduled to hold a phone conversation. The leader of the free world and the autocrat he follows will discuss reportedly U.S. sanctions against Russia, and if they're even necessary. Trump believes removing or loosening them would improve relations, and he's right about that. Other things that would improve relations, the U.S. ceding Russia Montana, the U.S. giving Russia Gracie Gold and Ashley Wagner for their skating team for the next Winter Olympics. Though what would it do for us? Probably just make the Russians want more, more of Ukraine, throw in Estonia. How about North Dakota and Patrick Kane for the hockey team? So if you forgot everything that Russians done wrong, John McCain has a pretty good list of things. Here is the statement he put out ahead of the Russia call saying uh, Congress will pass sanctions if Trump tries to lift them. In just three years under Vladimir Putin, Russia has invaded Ukraine and ex-Crimea, threatened NATO allies, intervened military in Syria, leaving a trail of death, destruction, and broken promises. Russia's war on Ukraine has killed over 10,000 Ukrainians. Russia supplied the weapons that shot down a commercial aircraft over Ukraine, killing 298 innocent people. Russia conducted a massive military buildup along NATO's eastern flank, large-scale military exercises, violated borders, airspace, waters, intensified its propaganda... Russia's propped up the murderous Assad regime. Uh, Russia has targeted Syrian hospitals and first responders. And Russia deliberately interfered in our recent elections with cyber attacks and a disinformation campaign designed to weaken America. But there are things, second order things, not even listed here. 
Internationally, Russia destabilizes all of Europe. Reports are out that it's trying to meddle with French elections, German elections. And just think about the places that the U.S. has tangibly helped save even in recent years. Take Bosnia and Herzegovina, where the Serbs, if you recall, they're aligned with the Russians, they're Slavs, they're members of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So a peace holds in the Balkans because of the Dayton Accords. And the number one obstacle to that peace is Milorad Dodisk. He is the president of the Serb part of Bosnia and Herzegovina. He's always a thumb in the eye of peace. He names buildings after Serb war criminals. He refuses to follow Bosnia-Herzegovina Supreme Court rulings. Did you hear what happened to him 10 days ago? So here's the U.S. ambassador to Bosnia, a woman Dodisk calls a proven enemy of the Bosnian Serb people, Marine Cormac. Today, the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control in consultation with the U.S. Department of State, designated Milorad Dodik, president of the Republika Srpska, as subject to sanctions, pursuant to Executive Order 13304, which was signed by President George W. Bush in 2003. That order authorizes sanctions to be imposed on, among others, persons determined to have actively obstructed or pose a significant risk of actively obstructing the Dayton Accords. Now, those sanctions are a U.S. Treasury designation. Trump, if he wants, can block that, can reverse that, can replace the ambassador, which he probably will. Like I said, that announcement was three days before the inauguration. At around that time, Dodisk also announced that he has been invited to the Trump inauguration. So it turns out it wasn't the official ball, but to a side ball sponsored by Trump supporters and Tea Partiers. But still, he was denied a visa. Another update about that region is that Corey Lewandowski, remember him, ran the Trump campaign for a while. His new gig is advising the Bosnian Serbs. So that's all reasons, a whole bunch of reasons why the United States, just for our own interests, should sanction Putin and Russia. But in doing so, we will also be serving the interest of the Russians. Putin has set Russia back tremendously. They were a brick nation. Uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, nations that were supposed to have exponential growth this century. Brazil did for a time. Corruption. China still does. I mean, they've slowed down. Slowed down to 7%. That's like three, four times what the United States experiences. Uh, India's growth still around 7%. Russia is in Brazil's boat. Russia contracted. It didn't have growth. It had negative growth last year. You know, in the US, 2% that's seen as pathetic. But Russia would love that. And they didn't have 60 years of post-World War II growth to lean on. The citizenry in Russia earns less in wages today than the average citizen in China does under Putin. Under Putin, alcoholism is a problem, and it's always been rampant in Russia. But before Putin, Medvedev, he was in charge. He raised the price of vodka to combat alcoholism. But Putin knew better. He knew that during the sanction-fueled economic crisis, the Russians needed their distraction. They needed their medicine. They needed their poison. He lowered the price of vodka. And in recent cases, I said poison, literally poison. 77 Russians died last month drinking counterfeit surrogate alcohol, which was actually a scented bath lotion mislabeled as containing ethanol. Then there is the abuse of women. Russia's parliament today voted 380 to 3 to decriminalize domestic violence except in cases where it causes, quote, substantial bodily harm if the abuse only happens, only happens once a year. 
In Russia, 36,000 women are beaten daily. 40 women are killed by their partners a day in Russia. That's 12 times the death rate of the United States. Decriminalizing domestic violence will help, quote, create strong families, says the Speaker of Russia's parliament. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told journalists that family conflicts, quote, do not necessarily constitute domestic violence. I don't want to impose U.S. values on Russia. We're different. In fact, imposing or thinking the Russians are like ourselves is a bad strategic move. It it actually is an argument against sanctions because most countries, if you hurt the pocketbooks of the populace, they blame the leader. But Russia has this weird thing going on where they they will accept less material comfort uh, in exchange for what they perceive as nationalism. So it's not about that. And I also think it's naive to think that the U.S. is perfect or that simple U.S. disapproval sends some sort of unignorable message of reform. We disapprove of plenty of bad countries with plenty of bad policies, and those countries keep being bad. But Russia has not progressed, not by U.S. standards, but by human standards for many, many years. Their leader has consolidated power and in doing so warped a nation. I say one nation's enough. That's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube, son of a vicar. Just producer Mary Wilson, daughter of a member of the trade crafts. Executive producer of Slate Podcast Steve Lichtai grew up among the hedgerows upon the heath. Chief content officer of the Panoply Network, Andy Bowers, is no public school fancy lad. Now, of course, public school means private school. Also, Andy has all the episodes of The Two Ronnies on tape, which means he has never seen either Ronnie. Listening to the gist, which, according to Cockney rhyming slang, means urinating forcefully. Oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening. Brexit. 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 Brexit.